Today we're going to continue our fall series, which we've entitled uh, Ecclesia Rediscovering Spirit Form Community. And uh, we said Ecclesia is simply the New Testament word that's used for church. And so we're focusing on the church as a spirit form community. The church is a community of spirit form followers of Jesus, and we are participating together to build the kingdom of God and fulfill Jesus' mandate to make disciples. We've said that the church in Acts is an excellent example for us to model and see what a spirit form community looks like. And so as we work our way through the fall, we're looking at some of these different characteristics. In week one, we looked at Christ-centered teaching. In week two, which was last week, we looked at fellowship and what that meant from a biblical standpoint. And this morning, we're going to talk about prayer. I'm just going to share this video with you. Today, we're talking about pre-meal prayer. Very confusing subject. A lot of people don't know when to pray, what to pray for, how to pray, who prays. Hey, do you want me to, should I pray? You want to, should we pray? I don't know if, all very confusing. We're going to cover it all today. Let's get started. Chips and salsa. Sometimes they bring it to the table before you're even seated. There's no need to pray for that. Lots of people wonder about appetizers. Do you pray for them? Do you not pray for them? No prayer is necessary for an appetizer if you have entrees coming out later. Salad. That is the most confusing thing on the prayer continuum. If it's a side salad or an appetizer salad, no need for prayer there. Now, if it's a main course salad or you're bringing it out with the rest of everyone else's meal, that then is going to require some kind of prayer. But I put that kind of in a separate category. For the most part, when you're thinking about salads, just remember this. If it requires dressing, it doesn't require a blessing. Soup. Do you pray for soup? Do not pray for soup. It's only bowl-related soups. Anything smaller than that is always off the hook. I like to say if it comes in a cup, no need to lift up. Everyone knows if you order a hamburger, that's going to require prayer. But if you order sliders, that does not require prayer. It's a little glitch in the system a lot of people are not aware of. Potato skins, no prayer. Baked potato, prayer. Here's the policy on fries. Up to three Fries is acceptable to eat prior to the prayer. Last but certainly not least, who at the table volunteers to lead the prayer? A lot of people operate under the most spiritual person at the table. They're going to be the one that should pray because that prayer is going to be the most powerful and effective. So if you got obviously a pastor, a missionary, even a Christian blogger of some sort, shoot, even a volunteer youth pastor, that prayer is going to be a little less effective, but it's still going to qualify. If you're just an average person, sitting at the table with obviously more spiritual people around you, you're kind of off the hook because I feel like God would be like, hey, how come y'all didn't bless this meal? You'd be like, I don't know. Ask the pastor. He works for you. I've been asked to pray a lot at, at meals. In a culture obsessed with connectivity and communication, the church in, I'll say, the northern hemisphere struggles to understand and value the practice of prayer, which is the ultimate practice of connectivity and communication. We have noticed in the Southern Hemisphere that the church, Christianity, is growing significantly, and it's in these environments that you see a strong commitment to corporate prayer. And I believe that these two connecting points are not coincidence. And so what the book of Acts teaches us about prayer 
is this. In a spirit-formed community, followers of Jesus engage in persistent and earnest prayer that is unified in purpose and corporate in practice. And so today we're going to take a look at this and see this being lived out in a very specific moment, an account, an event in Acts chapter 12, which we would consider the story of Peter in prison. Our scripture, Acts 12, 1 to 17, was read earlier in the service, and you can follow along uh, if, you, if you choose as we work our way through it this morning. I want to start with the context of our story. When you read the New Testament, you discover that arrest and imprisonment were common for the followers of Jesus. In this particular story, it's Peter that has been arrested and subsequently imprisoned. Persecution of the followers of Jesus began immediately following the day of Pentecost, and I believe this is not a coincidence. Once they were empowered by the Spirit, they then carried out the mission with incredible boldness. And so the religious leaders in Jerusalem were unhappy with the apostles, with the authority, with the boldness that they were they were ministering in. So, you know, they hated Jesus, who was their leader, and they killed him. And now they're focused on destroying his followers in an attempt to wipe this thing out once and for all. At this time in history, Israel was under the rule of the Roman Empire, and governors who were appointed by the emperor of Rome, by Caesar, were given authority to rule specific jurisdictions on his behalf. They're a second level of leadership, and while they were governing on Caesar's behalf, they needed to demonstrate to Rome that they could maintain order and also uh, so they could have permission to continue and be praised in their leadership. Now, most of these governors were never popular with the people, as you can imagine. They represented uh, they, they represented the, the, the Roman Empire, and so they were resented by those who were living in these areas. They were seen as outsiders who were ruling over them. And so we're told in our scripture that Herod Agrippa I was the governor of part of Syria, of Galilee, of Perea, and Judea, which also included the city of Jerusalem. And he was the grandson of some other Herods that you might remember. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who ordered that all baby boys be killed when he heard of Jesus being born the king of the Jews from the Magi. He was the nephew of Herod Antipas, who in response to an incestuous lust for his stepdaughter, had John the Baptist beheaded. So this is a brutal, cruel family. Herod Agrippa I knew how the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders felt about governors. And so he wanted to be accepted by the Jews. He wanted peace in his territory, and he wanted to ensure that he had a successful reign. And so even though he was not a Jew himself, he showed loyalty to the Jewish traditions and practices and joined them in their processions and their celebrations. This resulted in him gaining the favor of the Jews, even though he himself was a Gentile because they saw him as one 
who was sympathetic to their values, their goals, their priorities. He also knew that the religious Jews had issue with these Christ followers, the church. And so he warned the apostles to stop preaching, to stop teaching, to stop working miracles, but, but they wouldn't cooperate. And so he's aware that by persecuting the church, he could build a bridge and find favor with the religious Jews. And so because of that, even though he had no direct issue himself with the followers of Jesus, he began to persecute the church to gain favor with the Jewish people. James was a well-known leader in the Jerusalem church, and we're told that Herod Agrippa I was responsible for having James killed. And that he observed that this pleased the Jews, so he set out with his sights on Peter as the next target. He knew that eliminating Peter would strike a devastating blow to this young church. This movement that had started, this fringe group that they saw would be destroyed if they could destroy the leaders. And so he had Peter arrested and he placed them in prison. The arrest took place during the time of Passover or the Feast of uh, sorry, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and which was eight days in length. And so he's, he's, Herod is holding him to the end of the Passover to have a trial and then subsequently execute him. And in Herod's mind, this is a great plan. The Jewish people, in the meantime, could focus on, uh, you know, their, their celebration. And at the end of Passover they could then shift their focus to this act that he's going to carry out. And there's still going to be large crowds in Jerusalem because those who came for Passover, well, they haven't gone home yet. So there's a big audience and they've had their celebrations and that's been respected. And before everybody goes home, he can then present them with this execution and gain even more favor. This was Peter's third time being arrested. He's awaiting trial, and death is waiting for for him, for sure. We're told he's placed in the care of 16 soldiers, four teams of four. Each team would guard for three hours each. Two guards are chained to him directly, chains on his wrist, chained to two guards and two watching over him. We're told that they're in the inner prison and and there's three additional guarded gates to pass through before reaching the outside. Now, it's interesting to note that this is double the number of usual number of soldiers that would be guarding a prisoner. But Peter had escaped from prison before and they're not taking any chances this time. This plan is well executed is a great strategy, and they're not taking any chances of anything going wrong. And so it's the night prior to the trial and the execution. Peter is asleep between the two soldiers that are chained to him. And as we read that, we notice that this is such an incredible change in Peter. Such an incredible change that we observed in his life leading up to that moment on the day of Pentecost. A Peter who was feisty and retaliatory and hot-headed. 
He's not in there, you know, just ready to do something. He's not fighting for his life. He's just, he's asleep waiting the inevitable. James had been killed. Now it's likely his turn. And he's willing to die for Jesus. He said it before, but now he knows what it means. And he's ready to die for Jesus. He's ready to die for the kingdom of God. And so the violent prison has become a peaceful environment for Peter. So that's the context of our story. Then we see prayer. We're told that the believers in Jerusalem were very aware of Peter's situation. He personally mattered to them. As an individual, he mattered to them. He was a part of their spirit-formed community. And as we say, when one suffers, we all suffer. And so, you know, he mattered to them. He was also their unofficial leader and spokesperson. Losing Peter would strike a devastating blow to the newly formed community of Christ followers. Not only was Peter's life at stake, the very vision and ministry of the church was at stake. This could destroy everything. Herod was coming for them, and they knew it. They were scared. They're concerned. And they felt powerless to do anything to stop Herod and all those that he was directing. So they did the only thing they knew to do. They did the thing that came natural to them as they served Jesus in an incredibly hostile environment. They gathered to pray. And so we're told they gathered at the house of Mary, which was the mother of John Mark. It was likely a a larger house than most since they were able to fit into there and gather and stay there. They met to pray for Peter. They met to pray for their church community. They met to pray for the cause of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the mission that they had been given. They were committed to prayer while Peter was sleeping with little hope of deliverance. Now, there are a few words used in the book of Acts that provide an understanding of corporate prayer within this spirit-formed community, and we see these demonstrated in this passage here. And so some of these words are unity. We read and observe regularly that they were in one accord. Clearly not a Honda, right? They're in one accord. They had a singular focus. They are unified in purpose. They are rallying around something that they had in common, something that was critically important to them. Unity. Secondly, devoted. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. Devoted themselves. That means that prayer was continual. It was regular. It was ongoing. It was persistent. It was central in their everyday practices. It wasn't a specially called event. It was a normal, ongoing part of being in the community of faith. Devoted. The third word that shows up is earnest. Now, it's interesting that Luke uses this same word when he's recording the event of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night 
prior to his arrest and the next day his crucifixion. And, and Luke says this, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. This word earnestly, earnestly brings this sense of emotional intensity, this heightened intensity. And in this particular case, in Acts with Peter, it was Peter's imprisonment that, that motivated the church to earnestly pray for Peter. And so we're told that they prayed day and night. And if you look at the timeline here, it's likely the length of close to a week that they have prayed day and night for Peter's release. Peter's deliverance motivated them to pray earnestly together. So many times in the book of Acts, you see the word together, together, together. Male and female, together. Young and old, together. Servants and leaders gathered together in groups to pray. They're together at the temple. They're together in the synagogues. They're together in their homes. And in this particular case, it is a home. And once again, they're together. And the fifth and final word, many. It says there were many praying in the home. The word many comes from the root of the word, which means sufficient. And so it indicates both a large number participating, and it also indicates that a large number is actually a sufficient number. That's a good number. A large number, many, is sufficient. And so we see this prayer happening in this house for Peter, for the church community, and for the kingdom and mission of the kingdom of God at large. Thirdly, deliverance. The spirit-formed community of believers were praying, and a miracle is about to happen. It was in the middle of the night prior to the trial and likely execution, and we're told that an angel appeared in the prison and a light illuminated the darkness. And Peter stayed asleep, as did the guards. And we're told the messenger of the Lord tapped Peter sharply. <laughs> it's like when your husband is snoring. Elbow, roll over, stop breathing, whatever it takes. I can't sleep. Sharply on the side, it says, quickly, get up. And it says, when he got up, the chains fell off. Another example in scripture of when someone acts, they don't wait for something to happen before they act. They act, and then God responds. And so the chains fell off. And the angel said, Peter, put some clothes on. Get dressed. Put your shoes on. And then we're told he followed the messenger out of the prison. Peter walked away from the chains and the soldiers, and he's led past the first gate 
with soldiers and the second gate with soldiers and then the third gate to the outside and he's into the street. The scripture says he was delivered. Same word used in the Old Testament concept when it comes to the the Israelites in Egypt. He's let out of captivity, he's let out of prison, and now he's free. Now, Peter wasn't quite sure at first what was happening. He thought he's a, you know, I'm experiencing a a vision. I'm having a vision. This is a very spiritual moment. I'm having a vision. The guards are totally unaware of what's happening. They're they're missing the whole thing. He, He doesn't even know what's happening, and they don't. And the messenger, we're told, took him safely to a side street and just left him there in the middle of the night. And it was at that moment that he realized what had happened, that God had delivered him from the prison. God had delivered him from impending death. He's free. He's out in the street. And so what did he do? Immediately, Peter went to the house where the believers had gathered and knocked on the door. Now, as I was reading this this week, I thought, of a question I'd never asked before when looking at this passage. Why would Peter go to a house in the middle of the night? I mean, clearly he wasn't being texted or tagged on Facebook. Hey, meeting over here. If you happen to get out, this is where you can find us. He has no idea what's happening out there. He's been in prison for days. Why would he go to a house in the middle of the night. Why would he wake up the occupants of a house? I believe it's because he knew how important prayer was in the spirit-formed community, and he assumed that his church community was going to be praying for him. Why else would you go to a house in the middle of the night if you didn't expect that that was going to happen? And so he went there, and we're told a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. I think this is like my all-time favorite scripture. You got to realize what a scary moment this is for her. It's the middle of the night, and the house is filled with praying Christ followers. And it was at a time that it was common for authorities to go house to house in the middle of the night and drag the occupants out of the house and arrest them, persecute them, and even kill some of them. And so in the middle of the night, in the darkness of night, there's a knock on the door. She has no idea what is waiting on the other side of that door. And we're told she recognized Peter's voice. She's not answering this door. We're not opening the door. But she recognized his voice. And she's so overjoyed, she forgot to open the door and let him in. Instead, she ran to tell everyone, Peter is free. Peter is free. Peter is at the door. And she got the response that all of us want when we hear from God. They thought she was out of her mind. You're out of your mind. You're interrupting us. 
We're doing something really important for day upon day and night upon night. Don't you know that we've gathered here for almost a week intensely praying for Peter that he would be set free, that the mission of Jesus would carry on, and you're interrupting us with this ridiculous story about Peter being at the door? They couldn't believe that it was Peter at the door. So then there's another question. Why are they praying for an answer but doubt its possibility when the answer comes? It doesn't make sense. I believe it's because the answer came in a way that was different than they were expecting. I believe they were expecting that God would somehow intervene in this trial, would, would, would soften the heart of Herod, would give Peter favor with the authorities, and let him go. And then all of a sudden, in the meantime, it's the middle of the night, and Peter's at the door, and he's knocking. Not what they envisioned. And what's so ironic here, my favorite part of the irony here is that Here's a guy who can break, break out of prison. Chains fall off. He's walking past gates and soldiers that are attached to him and guarding him, and he can't gain access to the prayer meeting. He can't get in. So eventually they went to the door, and they saw that it was Peter, and they began to rejoice. And he said, shh, be quiet. He said, I want to tell you, I need to share my testimony. This is what happened. I was praying, anticipating that God was going to show up. No, no, I was sleeping. This is what God did. And they're all excited. And he says, listen, because obviously this is not everybody in this house. There's other houses So he says, listen, I'm telling you this because I need you to share this with the others. Let them know. Because Peter knew that the testimony of answered prayer, of God's miraculous intervention and protection, would strengthen the church, would strengthen his fellow believers, would strengthen the mission. And then knowing that the authorities would be looking for him, he went to another place to hide. In the meantime, in the morning, there's a big disturbance. This is supposed to be a victorious day for the enemy. I can imagine that Herod can barely sleep. He's so excited. He's playing it out in his mind. He can hear the applause of the crowd as he carries out his evil plan. But it wasn't working out like he planned. When the guards woke up, Peter was gone. The chains are lying on the floor of the prison. And so Herod executed a thorough search for Peter, but they couldn't find him anywhere. He's gone. And so after cross-examining the guards, he had them executed as per Roman law that said that those guarding a prisoner would experience the prisoner's fate if the prisoner escaped, and so he had them executed. 
we're told that Herod then left Jerusalem for the Caesarean coast. Frustrated. Angry. Embarrassed. And history records that he never, ever returned to Jerusalem. He died in that area. Great story. So, what? Three insights from our text I'd like us to focus on today. Me versus we. Statistics show that most people who pray in North America pray alone. The primary emphasis of prayer is personal prayer, individual prayer, someone praying on their own. And there's no question that personal, individual prayer is a spiritual discipline that every follower of Jesus should value and pursue. Our relationship with Jesus is tied to personal prayer and the discipline of personal prayer. However, as often is the tendency, we focus on one area while at the same time taking focus off of another area. This idea of balance is one that we struggle with most of our lives and rarely accomplish. And so in this case, it's corporate prayer that's losing focus and emphasis while some shift to personal prayer, if prayer at all. Now, as you study the spirit-formed community in Acts, you'll notice that the primary focus of prayer that we observe in reading Acts is corporate prayer, not individual prayer. It's prayer in the temple, in the synagogue, in their homes, with other people. The spirit-formed community in Acts was launched out of a context of corporate prayer. They're, they're gathered together seeking the promise of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And as they continue as a community, praying together continue to be a priority. From the very beginning, it was a priority. And so I would suggest this morning that if we are going to be a spirit-formed community here at EPC, Corporate prayer must become a rediscovered priority. A rediscovered priority. Now, a few years ago, we used to host a midweek prayer meeting that was attended on average by 12 to 15 people. And that was a concern. So we began to heighten our emphasis on corporate prayer by promoting a small group concept where people who were in community together, accountable with one another, learning, growing, doing life together, would also pray together. And I want to tell you that I'm really pleased with that initiative. I'm really pleased with how this priority has grown. And even now, this fall, as we're launching our, our small groups again to see people signing up, even though it looks like nobody signed up, people signing up and excited to be with their community. And, and so when I look at that, the reality is that there's eight to ten times the number of people who are gathering to pray than there was before we made the shift. And so, so that's good. That's good news. But here's the challenge. Small group prayer 
tends to focus on the needs of individuals in the group and not on the overall vision and ministry and leadership of the Spirit Forum community. I'm not saying it doesn't focus on those areas, but primarily it focuses on the needs of those in the group. Now, praying for the needs of those in our small group is really, really important. That's a critical piece. You take that out and we've lost something very, very significant. But what I'm saying is we must also not lose focus on praying for the bigger picture of EPC and God's mission in his kingdom and how we're being used in his plan, in his purposes. And so it's important for us to make corporate prayer important in all those regards and not just focusing on individuals. It's important for us to continue to make corporate prayer a priority every Sunday as we pray together before the service starts and we pray for one another during the service as well. It's important. And we host special prayer gatherings like we just happen to be having tonight. Opportunities to come together to pray for each other, but to pray for the bigger picture of what God has for us. And so I'd like to encourage you, find your place in a small group where you can join others in praying for each other and also the community as a whole. Join us for pre-service prayer on Sundays. Engage in prayer during and at the end of the service. Make it a priority to attend special prayer gatherings. We need to shift from me to we. Secondly, hindrance. Truth be told, our present culture and subsequent lifestyles make corporate prayer a challenge. It makes it a lot more difficult. And so there are some hindrances that distract us from understanding and participating in corporate prayer. And these are just a few. Busyness. Despite advanced technology, we are busier than we have ever been. With all the demands on our time, the value of corporate time, of corporate prayer, and time for corporate prayer, has gotten lost. We're too busy to be a part of it. Secondly, needs-driven. Prayer has very much become needs-driven. When we're facing a challenge, when we need something from God, when we need God to intervene and change things for us or provide us with something that we need, we pray. We're motivated to pray. But when things are okay and have settled out, we we usually don't pray. We're motivated to pray when we need God to do something. And so corporate prayer sometimes becomes something we do when we're desperate and neglected when we're not. Thirdly, spiritual dryness. When we neglect investing in our relationship with Jesus, when we neglect investing in his community, the result of that ultimately will be what we would call a spiritual dryness. And when we're spiritually dry, it's really difficult to be motivated to commit ourselves to the practice of prayer. And so it's a hindrance. Anger. 
The truth is sometimes people in our spirit-formed community hurt us, disappoint us. They let us down. And sometimes we respond to that by withdrawing. Sometimes it's God that we're angry with. Because how could God let this happen? Why is God allowing this to happen? Why isn't God doing what I ask? We feel like God has let us down, that he's failed to answer our prayers, that he's acted differently than we asked him to. And so sometimes it's because we're angry with others, and sometimes, to be honest, we're just angry with God. And so we don't want to pray. Sometimes it's shame. We do things that are wrong. We say things that are wrong. We fail to do things that we know we should have done. And the result is sometimes we're embarrassed. Sometimes we're ashamed of our sin, of what we said, of how we acted, of what we did, of how it's impacted others. Sometimes we're arrogant and we don't care, but sometimes we, we feel so ashamed we, we, we don't feel worthy. And so we punish ourselves because of our shame. And we withdraw from prayer because who am I to seek God in light of what I've done and who I am and what I said? So I, I need to sit out for a while. And it's a hindrance to prayer. And sometimes it's contentment. Life's good. We don't want a level of spiritual experience above what we have right now. This is all good. This is all good. This is all I need. Just pop in once in a while, be around. I have enough to satisfy my spiritual need, and I don't really feel the need to to invest anything more. And as a result, those bigger picture priorities get lost, and we neglect prayer. All of these hindrances ultimately link back to one critical reality, a poor view and understanding of God. When we have a poor understanding and view of God, these hindrances easily come in the way. When these hindrances are true in our lives, it's because we don't understand God's heart. When these hindrances stand in the way, we don't understand God's character. When we allow these hindrances to hold us back, we don't understand who he is, what he desires, his longing for us, what he wants to do in our lives. We don't understand his grace. We don't understand any of those things when these hindrances stand in the way because we've lost sight of the character and reality of who God is. And I don't blame us because we're being sent messages from within church culture of, of telling us that, that this is how God is, and, but it's not true. And we've lost sight of the heart of God. Changing our view of God and our changing our understanding of God will help us remove these hindrances. When we understand who he is, his heart and his longing for us, it's easier to remove these hindrances. And third and finally, methodology. Now, I want to say that the last thing that the book of Acts intends to provide for us 
is a handbook, an instructional manual of how to pray. It's not a prayer guide. It's not a prayer guide. Instead, it shows us how important prayer is in a spirit-formed community and the impact that making corporate prayer a priority can make in the church. But there's something to be gleaned about methodology and prayer from today's scripture. But it doesn't come from the believer's example of praying. It comes from God's response in answering their prayers. The church was praying for Peter, earnestly, together, committed. And while praying, they had an expectation of how God would answer their prayers. They were clearly not expecting Peter to walk out of the prison in the middle of the night and show up at their prayer gathering. They likely expected Herod, like I said, to be influenced by God and and let him go. If there was going to be a miracle, that was likely going to be it. Peter clearly was not expecting God to act as he did. He's not anticipating the angel's arrival. He didn't say, where have you been? I've been waiting for you for days. He wasn't expecting him. But God answered their prayers. God answered their prayers. Peter was delivered. The church was preserved, but not in the way that they expected. It was different than they expected. It was a different methodology. And so it's important for us to understand that sometimes God may answer our prayers exactly as we ask him to. Boy, when that happens, isn't that great? Especially like if it's within an hour. Actually, 30 seconds if it's a parking space you need at the mall, right? But when God answers exactly as you asked, that's great. That's great. But sometimes it's different. He may work in a way that's different than we ask. And some of us have had that, where it's like so many others in Scripture, right? I thought, I thought, this is what I thought you would do. This is great, but I didn't see this coming. In fact, for a while, I didn't understand it. In fact, even for a while, I might have been resisting it because I didn't see it for what it was. But now I see. God actually sometimes works different than I would do it. In fact, sometimes God doesn't do what we ask at all. And many of us have had that experience too. This is what I need you to do. Please do this. I'm begging you. But he doesn't do what we ask. Understanding that you cannot predict the methodology that God will use to answer our prayers and respond to our request will force us to live on a level of trust in him when we can't see him working or when things are going different than planned. Believing 
falling into the trap of believing that if you can just muster enough faith that God will act as you are asking him to act is actually shifting the authority away from God and onto yourself. Because at that point, you're believing that it's your faith that controls God and not the other way around. It's better to understand that trust needs to be childlike and allow him to work in a way that, it's, that is best, even if it's not what we wanted, if it's different than we ask. God may be answering your prayer, but you can't see it because it looks different than you expect it. God may not be answering your prayer because it actually goes against what he's trying to accomplish. But when it becomes obvious that he has helped you, that he has answered, whether the expected or in the unexpected, and a miracle has taken place, an act of God has taken place, folks, the story needs to be told. The story needs to be told. And as Pentecostals, we used to have the corner on the market of telling our story. We used to call them testimonies. We used to have testimony services. I don't want to go back to what I endured as a kid. Trust me, I don't. But we're not telling our stories enough. We're praying for people, but we need to circle back and tell the story. Because when we hear the story of what God is doing through our prayers, it builds us up as individuals and as a body and as a, as, as a group that's moving forward to build the kingdom of God, to build the church. It builds us up in incredible ways. Peter says, go tell the others. There's a story to be told. Tell your story. Don't just keep it to yourself or your two closest friends. Tell your story. God answered this prayer. This is what he did for me. Tell your story. I'm going to invite the worship team back. In a spirit-formed community, followers of Jesus engage in persistent and earnest prayer that is unified in purpose and corporate, together, in practice. So my encouragement for you this morning is let's continue to pursue the spiritual discipline of individual prayer while at the same time, let's prioritize the value of corporate prayer. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It's both. Let's acknowledge the hindrance in our lives. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to show us the hindrances in our lives that are keeping us from prayer. And then let's be deliberate in overcoming these obstacles. And let's continue to seek God and allow him to respond in whatever manner he chooses because he knows best. And I tell you, when he does act, Let's share the good news so we can build one another up. Would you stand with me this morning?
we're going to gather for prayer this morning. So I'm just going to be a little transparent with you about a prayer that I was praying for about a month and how God didn't answer it for me. So, as many of you know, you know, Jen is living with cancer. And so we've, we've been able to get our heads around kind of living life in light of that. But then all of a sudden, I decided it would be a good idea to ask God a question. So I said, whatever you do with this, wherever it goes, we're, we're fine with that, but I just need to know, are you going to heal her or are you going to give us the strength to be sustained? I just want to know which is going to be. And whatever it is, I'm good with that. I stupidly prayed that for a whole month when I could have been praying for you. I prayed that thinking, and then one day as I'm praying it, I'm thinking, really, what difference is it going to make? Because at the end of the day, he's still going to sustain us. It, it doesn't, having those answers don't matter. I just had to trust him. And I didn't really realize that until I'm sitting in North Carolina with my mentor from Cuba and I'm telling him about my prayer and he doesn't have to say anything. He just has to look at me and I go, yeah, that's a really dumb thing. I realize I don't need to know this. I don't need to pray this. I, I'm praying for both. I need one while I'm waiting for the other to happen. <laughs> As do you in your situations. But at the end of the day, it's just childlike faith to trust that God's going to do what God's going to do. And sometimes it's going to be exactly as we ask. And sometimes it's going to be different than we ask. And sometimes, for some reason, it's not going to be at all. And I don't know why. But you just walk with him in childlike faith. That's what you do. That's what you do. So I encourage you to that this morning. God will sustain us. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know if he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. But it doesn't stop us from seeking him and trusting him and having childlike faith. So this morning, our prayer team is going to gather, and I would invite you to, to come. And if you need prayer this morning, this is one of the beautiful things about being a part of a body like this is that some of you here, in the midst of your struggles, you don't have to do this alone. We care about you. We want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. We want to be there for you. We want to do this journey with you. Sometimes we feel like Elijah. I'm the only one. God says, no, I got a lot of others. You're not alone. You're not alone. Prayer team, would you come? If you want prayer this morning, if you don't have special need for prayer, I just ask you to pray while we're worshiping. Holy Spirit, is, are there hindrances in my life and what are they? So there's nothing that's holding me back from this valuable, valuable experience of being a part of a spirit-formed community and understanding and participating in prayer. Lord Jesus, this morning, we pray that those words would be our prayer. We love you, Lord. We love you. And we want to serve you. We want to know you. 
We need you in our lives. We need you in our church. We need you to enable us to be who you called us to be, who you expect us to be in our attempts to, to serve you and to, to be for you what you need us to be. And so, Father, this morning I pray that as we gather as a spirit-formed community, as part of our forming, as part of our shaping, would you help prayer to become an increasing characteristic of this community of believers. That we could take the emphasis of prayer in our individual lives and in a corporate way to new heights and new levels in our lives. Father, this morning, would you show us by your spirit if there are some hindrances in our lives that need to be removed or overcome. Would you show them to us? Would you help us with them so that, Lord, we can be all that you've called us to be? There could be a freedom in our lives to serve you without hindrance. And so, Father, I thank you this morning for a community of people who care for each other, not just those who make up the community, but those in the community around us. Thank you that we're able to help in practical, tangible ways that we can show the love of God and even most importantly, pray for those whom prayer is not a, a value for them. It's not something they've practiced, but they see the need for it in their time of need, that we can come alongside and pray for them. And Father, would you be with us as we continue to walk with you? Lord, you know the things that are the cry of our hearts. You know the things we're asking you for. You know the things we're asking you to do. Some of them we see, some of them we don't see, some we don't understand. But we walk by faith with you in childlike trust, believing that you hold our lives in your hands. Father, as we leave this place today, may we go with a reassured, Lord, with a reassurance that you're with us. You care. You're there. You're active. You're involved. You hear us. You see us. And enable us to live out your kingdom in every moment, with every thought, every word, and every action. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.